right. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, good to see everybody here at Dallas Church. Uh, my name is Eric, and I am recently from Idaho. Uh, I was in McMinnville for 17 years. Uh, good to see some older friends uh, here in the room from the old place I used to be. But I'm in Twin Falls, Idaho, planting a church. And I've known your pastor, Ben Bauman, for a lot of years um, because we were kind of in the church planting circles together. Uh, now, Ben is significantly older than I am. Um, and so I've been able to glean a lot of wisdom over the years from him. Uh, ben is that guy that if you've got a crazy idea, he's the guy to talk to. Uh, you bounce it off of Ben, he'll uh, be a good sounding board. Uh, ben and I have kind of dreamed and schemed and uh, talked about church planting and things over the years. When I need advice, I call Ben. Uh, the thing I picked up about Ben is that he really does care uh, he always talks about his church with fondness, his people with concern. Uh, he cares about Jesus. He cares about the kingdom of God. You guys are blessed to have Ben as your pastor. Um, and he cares about church planning, and I think that's why I'm here today to talk about that. Um, there's a story about Henry Ford, and uh, some of you, you know, drive Fords. Well, Ford started off with the Model T. Anybody still have a Model T? Any, any hands? Okay. Uh, Model T, and it was like this cutting-edge technology. Um, he made it very simple, uh, highly uh, producible and affordable, and at one point, all the cars owned in the United States, uh, of all the cars owned, half of them were Model T Fords. So in his mind, he created the best car of all time, and never it would never change, right? So meanwhile, the the competition started innovating. They started creating. They started making improvements and offering cars in different uh, colors. And, and uh, one day Edsel, his son, surprised him by showing his father a new prototype, a six-cylinder Ford, uh, with several significant improvements. He unveiled it to his father. His father was furious. He tore off everything you could tear off with your hands. He kicked it uh, with his shoes and just broke it into like a pile of, of scrap. Why did he go ballistic? Why did he do that? Because in his mind, uh, the, the Model T was all that they were ever going to make. And while he was stuck in the glory days of the Model T, the automotive industry was passing him by and they were headed toward financial ruin. Why was he so resistant to change? Because change... Is hard. Change is difficult. Change is painful, and change can trigger feelings of great loss, which is why people will fight to keep things the way that they are, even if they're not working. Now, most of you have probably been in church long enough to have a, a couple of experiences that may sound familiar. Uh, you've been in church long enough to hear people say, well, that's the way We've always done it, right? Maybe you've even said that or, or thought that. You see little skirmishes break out in churches when they decide to, to cancel this time-honored tradition or this program that we've done for years. You've heard murmurings and maybe seen people leave when they didn't like the change that was being introduced. Like Henry Ford, and probably like all people everywhere, church people can be greatly resistant to change, even if it means going out of business. And so many churches are doing just that. One of the things that I did before we planted this new church was I did a lot of research about the state of the church in the U.S. And to my surprise, I couldn't find one metric, not one single metric or measurement that says that we're doing well. In fact, all of them seem to indicate the exact opposite. 
Uh, in the U.S., 35% of churches are subtracting. That means they're in decline. 35% of churches are plateaued, mean they're not subtracting, they're not growing, they're just kind of stuck. 30% of churches are adding uh, people. 7% of U.S. churches are, are reproducing, which is what Dallas is trying to be a part of, is always helping new churches get started. 0% of U.S. churches are multiplying, even though we see that happening around the world in different church planning and disciple-making movements. And 21% of evangelicals, which is people like us, have a biblical worldview, meaning that only 21% of people who sit in churches on Sundays see the world and understand the world the way that the Bible presents it. That's a staggering number. 30% of regular church attenders stopped attending in any format during COVID, not watching online, not attending in person. They basically just gave up on the church during COVID. And 14% of people switched churches during COVID. Maybe that's why you're here this morning, and if that's true, then welcome to Dallas Church. Well, in the last 60 years, there has not been one county in one state where the percentage of Christians has gone up. What that means is that we have been in decline in every county, in every state, for 60 years running. That's an incredible losing streak for the winning team. And by the way, we're supposed to be the winning team. Now, the numbers don't shock me. What shocks me is the stubborn refusal of pastors and churches to do anything about it. And the way I interpret that, and forgive me if this sounds too blunt, but I I interpret that as you'd rather die than change. And that's precisely what's happening as hundreds of churches close their door. Actually, thousands of churches close their doors every year in America. We're looking at a passage today which gives us some great insights about the thing, and I want to say the only thing that can stem this tide, the only thing that can turn this around, it's discipleship. And it starts with Paul, who's writing to one of his young disciples, a young pastor named Timothy, who is pastoring in Ephesus. Now, please note that this is the last letter Paul wrote before he was executed for his faith. And so, the tone of the letter, the tone of this passage, is a little different than normal. He seems a little bit more nostalgic, a little sentimental, and perhaps even a little fatherly as he writes his final words. 2 Timothy 2.1 Timothy, my dear son, be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. He starts off by saying, my son. Have you heard people say, that guy is like a son to me. That, that lady, she's like a daughter to me. That's how Paul felt toward Timothy. And he says, I want you to, my son, I want you to be strong in the grace that God gives you in Christ. He didn't say, go be the man. He didn't say, uh, I want you just to be self-confident and, and have a good self-esteem. Or He didn't say, I want you to go read a lot of books and then try your best. He didn't say any of that. He said, I want you to be strong in the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's where our strength comes from. We have no power on our own. We have no ability on our own. We have no wisdom on our own. We can't possibly fix what's wrong with America, but Jesus can. And so we're strong in the grace that comes from Jesus Christ. And this is really essential. You can't be a disciple. You can't make disciples. You can't plant churches or do much of anything without first relying on the grace of Jesus Christ. Ben and I can tell you the names of the guys who've tried that. It doesn't work. Okay, be strong in the grace that comes through Christ. That's the foundation of our faith. And then, here's the vision, verse 2. You've heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. 
Now, teach these tr- uh, truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Think about what he's saying here. He's saying, uh, Timothy, I, he's Paul, I shared with you, you find reliable people, share with them, and then they'll pass it on to still others. That's a four-generation vision of discipleship. Paul to Timothy to others to more people. Four generations. And it creates a, a multiplying impact when you think that way. Now, that's the vision of God's people. Uh, it's always been the vision of God's people. That's how Jesus operated. That's how the early church operated. That's what we see as the master plan of discipleship in the Scripture. One person discipling another person who can disciple more and then more. Now you fast forward 2,000 years from the time this was written, and we see the exact opposite happening in American Christianity. Instead of doing what Paul said to Timothy, we do the opposite. We try to find one talented person and then gather a big crowd around that talented person. And if it works and the crowd gets big enough, then we can try to hire another talented person and we'll gather even more people. And then if we we have enough in the budget, we'll hire another talented person and and try to create a bigger crowd of people and our numbers go up and up and up and up. And it feels like we're winning, but all the numbers say we're failing. So how can that be? The vision of discipleship is not a vision to grow churches, but a vision to grow the kingdom, to take people in and then send them back out instead of to keep gathering them and getting it bigger and bigger and bigger and adding programs and building bigger buildings and trying to keep everybody. The vision of discipleship is not to keep everybody, but to send everybody out. Now, I'm not against bigger churches. Uh, I've been part of a, a bigger church. But, but here's what I see in our passage uh, as we, we look around, is that there's a vision that has a multiplying impact, and it starts from a person to a person to a person. That's the vision that's going to help our cities in our counties, in our state, in our nation, if anything, can. Have you ever considered why the church in America is failing? And I want to offer a couple of thoughts, and I don't mean these to be snarky or sarcastic, but I, I think our American approach to church has turned the local church into a provider of religious goods and services. We have all these things. What does your church offer? Here's all the things we offer. Come on in. Partake. Uh, We've turned disciples into spectators. We've gathered uh, people and uh, turned turned them into consumers. And so uh, discipleship relationships? No. Church attenders? Yeah. Where did Jesus say, I want you to be an attender? Where's that in the Bible? Where did Jesus say, I want you to watch people do ministry and cheer them on as they do it? That's not in the, the scripture. We know that. If we sit in front of a gifted speaker for 30 minutes, maybe we'll grow up into maturity in Christ. How's that working for us? Discipleship can't happen. Here's the the secret ingredient. Discipleship can't happen without relationships. And I want to ask you a serious question. How many discipleship or discipling relationships can a pastor really have? How many people, individual people, can a, a pastor really disciple? And can I just point out that Jesus only had 12? I mean, Ben's like super gifted, but, but Ben, Jesus only had 12. Okay, so, so what does that mean? It means that we need more people discipling than just a pastor on a stage. Uh, Jesus spent three years living and working and eating and sleeping and breathing with these, these men. And then he sent them out to change the world. And the reason we're here today is because of the work that his disciples did. The American church is trying to get people into a building 
instead of releasing mature disciples into the world. And that's why we're failing. We've lost the vision of disciples who make disciples and churches that plant churches. As disciples, our ability to reproduce is a matter of life and death. If we don't reproduce, we die. And that's why the American church is dying. So as he wrote these words, Paul was in prison. He's awaiting house arrest. He was awaiting execution. What bit of insight could this fatherly man write to his younger protege? What, what could he tell him to ensure that this vision of discipleship uh, and would, it, would continue to reach more and more people? Here's what he landed on. He said, I want you to take the things you've heard from me and teach them to other trustworthy people and let them do the same. Timothy, I trained you, you train others, and you create an expectation for them that they're going to do the same. It sounds really simple, doesn't it? Oh, that should be easy. No problem. Why do we make it so complicated? And you know, we have made it complicated. Uh, In the modern church, there's a heavy emphasis on marketing and strategic plans and business models. It might surprise you to know that behind the scenes in a lot of churches, there's things like operations manuals and company policies and even disclosure agreements. And these are things that are very commonplace in churches today. We have CEO pastors with PhD education and MBA vision, and we love discussing Uh, programs and buildings and budgets and administration and we have this thing called executive pastors I've never heard of a bigger oxymoron in my mind than an executive pastor Jesus and Paul had this very simple view Um, he said I want you just to take what you know and pass it on to someone actually many someones who can pass it on to other people and teach them to do the same simple highly producible reproducible and relational. We've got this young guy at our church named Cody, and I'm training Cody to be a disciple-making Christian, and he's got two years with us, and after those two years are over, we're, we're sending Cody out. I've told him, you can't stay. Now, the thing is, I like Cody. I have a lot of fun working with Cody. Cody makes me laugh. It's, it's fun to have a guy like that on my team, and I'd love to keep him, and, I, and I'm inclined to have him stay and help us grow this thing up, but the thing I've realized in this new expression of church that we're at is, is like the kingdom of God needs Cody. I can't keep him. The kingdom needs him. He, he's called and he's talented and he's got the tools in his bucket and I can't keep him. I need to send him away and help him to do what I'm doing and teach others to do the same so that they can do the same. That's the Bible's vision. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples. This passage goes on to illustrate Uh, discipleship in three ways. Paul says in verse 3, Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of a civilian life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. Now, I already said Paul was under house arrest, so as he's thinking of examples to illustrate his point, he probably looked to the chain on the end of his wrist, and they actually would chain people to a soldier. So his first example is actually the guy that's chained to his own wrist. And he says, uh, I want you to be like a, like a soldier. Timothy, there's a good idea. Uh, Roman soldiers were taken from the general public, but they, they didn't have the same freedom as the general public. They had a duty to perform. They could have wives and kids. They probably had some time off, but they couldn't allow themselves to get engrossed in civilian affairs because they had a primary role a duty to perform. They had a responsibility that was so important it couldn't be forsaken. They had a duty. They are expected to do their duty. If you're a soldier and your commanding officer calls and says, we need you, we've got a situation, you can't say, well, I've got plans tonight. 
if the siren goes off and the, the Mongolian hordes are invading Rome and, and it's like time for all the soldiers to come, and you can't say, well, my kids have a soccer game, sorry. You can't get caught up in civilian affairs when you're a soldier because at any moment you might be called to action. So do you get what Paul is saying here? Timothy, Christians, we have a duty to perform. Don't let yourself get distracted. You've got a thing that you're called to do and don't let yourself get distracted. Don't let yourself get off course. Be ready for duty. And may I say, and I don't know any of you, so I can say this anonymously. I have no one in mind. Um, Christians in America, I think, have, have gotten this idea that our job is to show up to a building and sit in a padded seat. One hour a week, and I'm a good Christian. And by the way, our church plant has metal folding chairs, so enjoy those, those padded seats. You know, maybe I'll throw some change in the offering. Maybe I'll help out once in a while, pull some weeds, you know. That is a recipe for perpetual immaturity and for dying churches. And that's not a biblical vision of discipleship. And that's why, that's a way the church plays, I think, defense. We're just trying to survive. We're just trying to keep the doors open. We're just trying to pay the bills. That's defense. That's the posture of a losing team. We're the winning team. That's not a, a vision of, of discipleship. Soldiers have to do their duty, and soldiers don't get distracted. And man, it's so easy to get distracted. How many times do you, do you look up and you go, man, I don't, I don't think we've been to church in like a month, or like maybe all of 2020. Uh, I, I don't think I've prayed with my kids in weeks. I, I can't even find my, my Bible. I don't, I don't know where I put it. It's been so long since I read it. Sometimes we have these moments where we kind of snap out of it and go, wait a minute, I've allowed some good things to creep in and replace the most important things. And I want to I say that because sometimes I think pastors create a, a false dichotomy of like everything that's not about Jesus is bad. Not true. A lot of things without Jesus are, are good things. There are good things that have nothing to do with Jesus. But sometimes we let the good things kind of edge out the more important things. A while back, a pastor who was a big name pastor, he tweeted, he said, many parents are more concerned about their kids making the team than making the kingdom. And man, people blew him up. They were so mad. They're like, is my whole life supposed to revolve around this? Well, yes. What do you think it means when you say that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life? What do you think that means? What do you think it means when we talk about him being the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and we invite him to be our Savior and, and Lord of our life? What do you think that means? It means that whatever he wants becomes the most important thing in your life and you must not let it be edged out by, by other things no matter how good they may be. Soldiers have a primary characteristic that's different from civilians. They're always on duty. They're always on call. They're always ready. And sometimes that means that we have to forsake good things for the most important things of our mission. It's interesting to consider the soldier analogy in light of Paul's instructions to, to Timothy about discipleship. How do soldiers learn how to be good soldiers? Well, they learn how to be good soldiers by soldiering. I'm going to hold on to that as we move to the second example from the wonderful world of sports. Uh, he says in verse 5, athletes cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. Anyone remember Lance Armstrong? He was a winning Tour de France champion seven times over. No one had ever done that before. 
Uh, we found out later that he used performance-enhancing drugs, that he used banned substances, that he transfused his own blood, which sounds really weird, but somehow helps. Uh, he used human growth hormones. He's guilty of all those things. He technically won seven Tour de France races, but he gets no credit, and he's always going to be remembered as a cheater, not a champion. Why? Because he didn't read his Bible. The Bible says if you're an athlete, you have to follow the rules. Maybe, maybe Lance should have read the word. Athletes don't get to play by their own rules. Football players don't take the ball and run into the hot dog stand and spike it and call it a touchdown. Basketball players don't get to doink the ball off the ref's forehead and say three points. We don't get to decide what the rules are in sports, but when it comes to our faith, that's what many of us are doing. Well, I know what the Bible says, but fill in the blank. The next thing you say is sin. I know what the Bible says, but that shouldn't exist in our language. I, I believe who God is, and it's my belief, and I, God is who I say He is. Well, how convenient. Morality is what I define for myself. Church exists to meet my needs, and if it doesn't, I'll just go to the church down the street and let them do it. According to the Bible, that's not how any of this works. Just like soldiers are on a mission, athletes play, play by rules, and athletes play to win, and the American church is not playing to win. We're playing to survive, and we're losing. The goal is to make disciples who make disciples, to train up disciples who can disciple others. It's just that simple and just that hard. We can have buildings. We can have programs. Uh, it's not a sin to have budgets and, and plans and strategies, but at the end of the day, we're after just one thing, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ who makes disciples who makes disciples. And, and, and we take what's put in us, we pass it on to others, help them do the same. That's how... We define success. That's what winning looks like. And how does a good athlete learn to be a good athlete? Do they just magically decide to be an elite athlete? I mean, I decided years ago I'd like to dunk a basketball. And so I, I started a training regimen. I, I sit on my couch and I watch basketball and eat potato chips. And I don't know what's going on, but I, I still can't get that, that, that dunk. Soldiers learn how to be soldiers by soldiering and athletes learn how to be athletes by training. If you think that showing up here once a week and listening to Ben speak, and he's very good, but if you think that's going to grow you into a mature disciple, you're kidding yourself. And churches who think they can transform lives by gathering a crowd once a week are, are kidding themselves. All the data says it's not working, and yet we keep plodding along doing the same thing, hoping somehow to stem the tide. Verse 6 says, hardworking farmers should be the first to enjoy the fruit of their labor. I, I'm not a farmer. I didn't, I, you know, I moved to Idaho and I've been, I have a lot of farmers in my church, so they explain things to me. But I don't know anything about farming, really. And I remember as a kid, uh, I had, my best friend was this guy named Pedro, and he lived right down the street. And um, sometimes he would stay the night on Saturday nights and then go to church with my family. And my dad, he, he didn't really cook, but my dad knew how to make waffles. It's pretty hard. You know, you whip up the bisquick and you put it in the waffle iron, out comes a waffle. So we're, he's doing that on a Sunday morning. Pedro's over. He has no idea what my dad's doing. He's watching. He's not saying anything. He pours this liquid into this uh, waffle iron. And when he opens it up and pulls out a waffle, my, my friend Pedro's eyes lit up. And he goes, I thought waffles came from the toaster, right? He had no idea, like, what waffles were, how they were made. Or, and, you know, we're incredibly removed from our food sources as Americans. That's a little sidebar. But waffles come from flour. 
and flowers produced by, by wheat, and wheat was grown in a field. And how did it get there? A farmer planted it and nurtured it. And all the people that Paul was writing to knew where food came from. They were an agrarian society. So when Paul talks about farmers, or when Jesus talked about farming, which he often did, there was a deep connection with the people he was talking to. And when Paul says, essentially, farmers work hard, people are like, I know, I am one. We don't understand that, perhaps. But I have a sneaky suspicion why Paul put this here. Disciple-making is hard work. And he wanted to compare it to something that everyone knows is hard, so that Timothy wouldn't miss the point. In some ways, farming might be an easier job than making disciples. You say, well, how could that be? Well, corn doesn't talk back. Potatoes aren't easily distracted. You know, beans don't decide to switch and become Presbyterians. But people do. I mean, I can tell you the stories. People do. Discipleship's hard work. It's messy work. It involves spending time with people and talking about real issues. And that's hard. I mean, I've had that experience where I I pour into people and then they leave. I help people through a a tough spot and they suddenly disappear. I listen and support them as they talk about their lofty ministry ambition and then they, they, they never achieve them. I've watched people just walk away from the church and from the Lord and discipleship is hard. It's hard work. Frankly, I think it's easier to figure out how to draw a crowd than it is to make a disciple And I think that's what Paul's trying to say. This is going to be hard, Timothy. Just like a soldier has a mission and an athlete has a prize in mind, farmers have to work hard to produce a harvest. My only real farming experience is my grandfather. Uh, He had a little plot of land up outside of Portland. And we'd go there on the weekends. And I remember my grandfather, I don't know how he came up with this, but the way he planted corn was he would stick the kernels of corn the seeds, in milk, and then let it ferment and get stinky and nasty and like hard. And he said that that helps the corn grow. I don't know. I'm not a farmer. He would, he would till up his little garden, make these little like, you know, rows, and he'd give me that stinky fermented milk cup with corn in it, and I'd have to pry those seeds out of that nastiness as a little kid and then plant them where he said to plant him. And then when I'd come back to visit, he'd, he'd have me water it, and he'd have me pull the weeds, and he'd always say, corn needs to be knee-high by 4th of July. I don't know where that comes from. I don't even know if that's true. But I, could, I can plant corn because my grandfather showed me how. And that's what discipleship is like. We're cultivating the soil of people's hearts, We're planting seeds, we're pulling weeds, we're giving them lots of nourishment. And eventually, what do we expect to see? Someone who sits in the chair on Sunday mornings. No. We're expecting to see a harvest. That's what Jesus said. He says to the disciples, the harvest is great. That's not the problem. Hey, we're in Oregon right now. There's plenty of lost people. We're in a target-rich environment. If we're trying to make disciples, we've got all kinds of opportunities. That's not the problem. The harvest is great. The workers are few. And so pray to the Lord in who's in charge of the harvest and ask Him to send more workers into His field. You know what? I bet Pastor Ben prays for God to raise up workers for the harvest field. And then you guys showed up. Well, congratulations, you're in, right, Ben? They're in. You're in the game, okay? There's lots of lost people to go around. The problem is the workers. So follow the train of thought in our passage. Farmers learn how to farm by farming. 
Soldiers learn how to soldier by soldiering. Athletes learn how to be athletic by training. There's something implied in each one of these scenarios. It's not named, but it's implied. It's soldiers, athletes, and farmers are trained by other soldiers, athletes, and farmers. Soldiers have officers who prepare them to serve. And athletes have coaches who prepare them to compete. And farmers are taught by those who've done it before them. The secret ingredients for Jesus' plan to change the world is relationships. And I want to tell you this morning that discipleship and relationships go hand in hand. You can have church and not have relationships. You can have Bible studies and Sunday school classes and never build relationships. You can do all kinds of like churchy things and never really have it amount to discipleship. And that's sometimes hard to discern. You know, Christians and churches do a lot of, can I say, good things, good things that don't produce disciples who can make disciples. Discipleship isn't giving people information. We're great at that. We hand people all kinds of books and say, you know, read this, watch that, uh, take this class, and then you'll know stuff. But knowledge doesn't mean ability. And it's not just doing religious things and then hoping something that will stick. It's transferring what God has put into you into the the hearts and lives of of the people around you. Paul was like an older guy as he wrote this. He's probably an old man, to put it nicely. And he, he could look back on his life and he could name, name the disciples he's made. And I want to challenge you. Look that up sometime. At the end of his letters, he's like, oh, say hi to so-and-so. Say hi to Timothy and Titus and Luke and Silas and Priscilla and Aquila and Yodia and Syntyche and Dionysus and Demarius. And the list goes on and on. And as he's an old guy looking back on his life, writing this letter, he can think of all the names of the people that he's invested in and who are still active in ministry. And in some way, those people were his, his legacy. They were the proof of his ministry, the proof of his discipleship. And he tells Timothy, you need to do that. You need to do what I've done. Find trustworthy people. They're out there. Invest in them. Be in a relationship with them, an on-purpose relationship, and give them the vision for doing the same thing. Don't keep them for yourself. Turn them loose. Paul could look back and see all the disciples he's made, and he wanted Timothy, this young guy, to have that same uh, perspective, that same ability, same opportunity as he aged, to look back and look at all those relationships. And so if I can say this to you this morning at Dallas Church, what what I want for you, what I want for the people at our new little church is to look back one day and be able to name your disciples. Can you do that? Can you look behind you? Can you look, you know, in the past and say, hey, these are the people that invested in me, and then look and say, and I'm investing in them. What are the names of those people? Can you remember with fondness the people whose, name, whose lives you poured your life into? Can you smile as you recall the people that you've introduced to Jesus? Have you ever baptized someone? If not, why not? Have you ever taught someone how to study God's word? Have you ever taught someone to pray like Jesus said to pray? Have you ever taught someone to share your faith? And if you can't do any of those things, do you know what you need? Someone to disciple you. If you don't know how to study God's word, pray and share your faith, what are you doing? Talk to Ben. He'll hook you up. I promise. Right, Ben? Right? Relationships. If relationships weren't part of this, man, we could hand you a manual and say, read this. We could give you a bunch of boxes to check on a checklist and you could say, okay, I've arrived. You could watch a video series on YouTube and say, okay, I'm ready. But the method of discipleship that Jesus employed 
always required relationships. And so I want to challenge you this morning not to be a church attender, not to be a church member, not even to be a Christian, whatever that means in America today, but to be a disciple of Jesus Christ who believes that your mission, not the pastor's mission, your mission is to go and make disciples of all nations. And it won't happen by accident. Soldiers are on a mission. They must not be distracted. Athletes are striving to win. They, they have to follow the rules. Farmers are working hard to produce a harvest, and it's going to be hard work. We can't keep doing what we've been doing and hope that things are going to change. It's not working. And Paul said in verse 7 something that I think we should take seriously. It seems like a concluding verse, but I think it's a powerful verse. He says, think about what I'm saying, and the Lord will help you understand all these things. Paul said, spend some time and consider the things I've just told you. Chew on this a little bit. You know, this passage was very uh, foundational in what we're trying to do in Idaho. I've had to come to terms with something that's very painful And that's that I've been part of the problem in the American church. I've bought into what they say to do. I've read the books. I've gone to the conferences. I've tried to build up this and not push it out this way. I I, I lost sight of that. I had it early on. I lost sight of that. And so now we're back to something simpler and something I think is harder. We're striving to be disciples who make disciples, to be groups that produce new groups, to be churches that plant new churches Everyone knows that American church is is dying and we know we need to change. And we're looking for this silver bullet or this magic thing or this new program or a catchy book that we can read that will turn it all around. We're we're dreaming and scheming and worrying and wondering and how this is all going to turn out. And, And the answer is, it's in the book. And it's been in the book all along. Make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And if anything I've said today resonates with you, if you know that you've been one of those bench warmer Christians instead of a disciple-making Christian, if you know that you've been sitting and consuming for too long and it's time to do something about it, can I plead with you to talk to Ben, talk to Andrew, talk to one of your shepherds today about getting back in the business of disciple-making. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we want to ask you this morning your blessing on these people. We know that every time that your word goes forth, it does not... Uh, return void, that if our hearts are open to what it's saying, that your Holy Spirit will meet us there in the, in the reading of your word, and, and that you'll incite us to do something. You'll call us to action. You'll prompt us to obey or to repent or whatever it is. And Lord, I know that anybody who is listening today felt a nudge of some kind, and I pray that they wouldn't forget about it and go to lunch they wouldn't say, someday I should do something about that, but they'll, they'll believe that right now is the time to act. I pray, Lord, your blessing on this church and on its leadership as they try to navigate a, a historically challenging time to be in the, in the church in America, that you'll give them wisdom and discernment and workers for the harvest. And Lord, we ask all these things, uh, believing that it's going to happen in the power and the grace of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. And everybody said...